Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets podcast. My guest today is Scott Osheroff. Scott has built a deep practitioner's understanding of some of the world's most interesting growth markets. These markets include Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Mongolia, and Myanmar. He's currently a portfolio manager at the Asia Frontier Fund, and he predominantly is focused on investing in Uzbekistan. Now, Scott's story starts with a great once upon a time, and so I will allow him to share the uh, origin of his adventures and work in contributing to uh, the development of frontier markets. Scott, please. Thanks for having me. So I'm from Los Angeles, went to university in Boston, and while I was in university at Northeastern, um, was trying to figure out my my path post-graduation. And I'd always been interested in the wealth accumulation that the baby boom generation in the States had accumulated. And having an interest in Chinese culture and Asian culture in a broader sense, um, realized that I could step back in time and benefit from the same demographic trends that drove the wealth creation of baby boom generation um, by being in Asia. Because if you look at people in their 20s and 30s in Asia, they are the baby boom generation of Asia. So um, I built a relationship with uh, some venture capitalists based out of New Zealand while I was in university. And we've been talking for a year and a half, every month or so. And two weeks before I came to Asia, we decided to work together. Um, they were investing in mainly frontier Asian markets at the time, and uh, specifically Mongolia. So a few weeks before I came to Asia, we agreed to build a frontier markets media portal. So I flew to Singapore, worked my way through Southeast Asia, and ended up Mongolia. And we worked together for about a year and a half. I was between Mongolia and Cambodia. And then afterwards, you know, we, we split up amicably. Um, and I was based in Cambodia, sort of bouncing around there in Vietnam, trying to figure out what my next move was. And I probably looked at 100 plus businesses, everything from importing cement into Cambodia exporting wood chips to the EU from eucalyptus plantations, real estate, of course, agricultural processing, whether it was mango processing, um, doing cashew processing, etc. Um, uh, anything you could imagine, I, I delved into. So I became uh, rather well versed in a variety of different industries. And then in 2014, uh, since I had met them before, I ended up formally starting uh, to work with Asia Frontier Capital. So I had met Thomas Hooper, the founder of Asia Frontier Capital, uh, back in 2012 when I transitioned from Mongolia down to Cambodia. And uh, we met at a conference and I believe it was May of 2014. And from there, I became an analyst for uh, Asia Frontier Capital's Asia Frontier Fund, covering Indochina and Mongolia. Then I moved over to Vietnam, uh, since I never lived in Hong Kong, was always sort of remote. Uh, lived in Hong Kong while I was working with Asia Frontier Capital. I ended up building the coconut water brand, uh, which I was trying to trade into China. And then I actually built a children's uh, line, um, which was in partnership with the third biggest dairy company in Vietnam, uh, based in Hanoi. So, yeah, was covering those regions, visiting companies, getting a better understanding of the capital markets, et cetera. 
And then in 2017, I went to uh, Myanmar for an investor conference and for a publicly listed company based in um, London. And I had some friends that were restructuring family conglomerates there. And ever since I came to Asia, I, I wanted to be involved in an economy that was early enough where I could, early enough in its development where I could get a foothold um, with some you know, influential families and big businesses. So my friends were restructuring the biggest, or what at the time was the second biggest port in the country, um, called Myanmar Port, and they grew revenue four times, and it became the biggest port operator. So while I was there for this investment conference, I went down to the port, saw my friend who was a CFO, and they had just taken on a client called Ruby Dragon, which is the biggest ruby miner in the world, or it was a few years ago before the Montepoise mines and Mozambique came online. So shortly thereafter, I moved to Myanmar, still working with Asian Frontier Capital, but I had a, a client, which was this ruby business. Um, and they were a conglomerate in everything from cement to wineries, hotels, jade mining, gold mining, coal, etc. So I started working with them, restructuring some of their hotel operations, their cement business, and then got into their winery as well. And then after a while, I stopped working with them, but stayed in Myanmar and was working with a few other families, mainly antique and construction. And then in 2018, May of 2018, um, the founder of Asia Frontier Capital asked me if I wanted to go to Kazakhstan for an investor tour. And I figured, why not? It's another country I've not been to, and it's part of the world that I like. So I went to Kazakhstan and then tacked on Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. Um, Kazakhstan doesn't have a huge capital markets. It has a bigger one today because of the Astana International Financial Center. But back then it was Kaze. Uh, Kazakh stock exchange based in Amati, where there wasn't a lot of free float. Um, so and nothing terribly exciting that wasn't already listed in London. So then went to Kyrgyzstan for two days. It's a small stock market, but nonetheless, a little interesting country. And then I came to Uzbekistan, which uh, had just begun to open after the death of the former president. And I realized that Uzbekistan was probably the biggest undiscovered gem in the world at the time. Um, there were no foreign investors in Uzbekistan, um, at least in a big way, actively. And you had companies on the stock exchange growing literally five, 600% year over year, uh, even though back then the currency had depreciated 20% during the year as they floated it. Um, but nonetheless, you had companies that were growing you know, several hundred percent per year, growing book value 40, 50, 60% year over year. And a handful of companies back then were paying dividends, which yielded, in some cases, up to 50%. So I realized this was potentially a golden opportunity, um, being that Uzbekistan has the biggest population of all the Central Asian uh, countries. And you know, if the country opens correctly and continues reforms, it, it should, in due course, be the biggest and most influential Central Asian state. So we ended up... Um, beginning to invest in the Uzbek capital markets, and then formally launched a Uzbekistan fund in March of 2019, where I'm the chief investment officer. And I've been living in Tashkent since January 2020 full time. Fascinating. Um, in terms of the development in the last four years, since you saw what clearly were remarkable um, 
bargains, but also just kind of great assets as well on the public markets. How have things evolved since then? The country's completely changed um, in most ways. Um, There's construction everywhere. You have international brands coming in. You used to only have two or three malls in the country. Now you've got half a dozen in Tashkent. Um, You have other ones being built in second tier cities. You have uh, expressways being built. Um, The country is completely transforming. Universities being built everywhere. Reform of the education sector. So you're seeing a bunch of schools being built all the way from kindergartens up to universities. Um, Again, it's night and day. And unfortunately, one way that you can monitor a bit of the economic progress is through consumption. And with rising consumption, you've seen not only real estate bloom, but um, traffic has gotten very bad. Of course, anyone that comes here from, say, Southeast Asia, would say that there's still no traffic, uh, but compared to what it was three, four years ago, um, it feels like Manila. Wow. And so in terms of uh, the kind of local sentiment on that narrative, would you say uh, there's a feeling of like market optimism in contrast to other regions? Um, you mentioned kind of Manila as an example. Um, would you say this is an outlier, outliner right now, sorry, outlier in contrast to other regions right now um, in terms of that feeling of kind of dynamism? Yeah, I mean, Uzbekistan, the problem with these countries is that, you know, when you're going from, when you're transitioning from a, a closed economy to a more open one, the bureaucracy is still there. So they've digitized a whole lot of processes, made it much easier to do business, but they still have much further to go. Um, and the government is very good at announcing programs and then sort of going silent on them. So there are definitely pluses and minuses, but um, uh, there's huge opportunity in the country. Uh, it has all the right ingredients for growth. Um, and yeah, there's definitely optimism on the ground. So in terms of the industry breakdown in the country, what would you say the most important industries are? Could you share some kind of characteristics, uh, of these industries? Sure. Well, bar none, the biggest industry is that of commodities. Um, uh, Uzbekistan has what will be, um, the third largest open pit gold mine in the world. And they... They have an underground extension, which SRK Mining, the global mining services firm, um, has done you know, step-out drilling. Uh, so they probably have 100 years uh, lifespan at that mine. So copper gold porphyry, about 70 kilometers outside of Tashkent. And then you have uh, a company um, four hours from Tashkent call, on the train called um, Ngemka. So it's an Avoy mining company. And they're home to the second biggest um, producing gold mine in the world, Open Pit, after Grassberg as of last year, producing, I think, about four or five million ounces um, just out of this one mine. So Uzbekistan is a commodity country. It's not a hydrocarbon country, but it has um, a huge endowment of everything else, you know, uranium, you know, a bit of tungsten, iron ore, uh, but certainly gold, silver, copper. So um, that, along with the petrochemical industry, probably makes up roughly 40, 50% of GDP. How do you think that composition changes in the next 20 years? Um, I'm not necessarily asking you to assume that the glass ball is going to be correct, but hypothetically speaking, what do you think uh, are some kind of like either A, new areas of commodities they can kind of lean into and unlock assets on, um, or B, that'll kind of like just be transformative, either growth or kind of volatility in, in, in those changes? 
I think it's services and agriculture and a bit of manufacturing that helped to dumb down the commodity, the, the pure play commodity exposure. Um, you know, Uzbekistan is the horticultural breadbasket of the entire region, uh, where, for example, Kazakhstan is the, the cash crop producer of the region. So Kazakhstan produces the grains, uh, Uzbekistan produces everything else. Um, for manufacturing, you have the biggest labor force here. And logistically, Uzbekistan is slowly but surely integrating from a multimodal pro, uh, perspective uh, to become the logistical heartland of Central Asia. So that should help cut down on logistics costs of you know, moving goods both to Europe but also to China. Um, and then services and IT in general, you know, tourism. There's a handful of IT parks here, basically in every major city, which are attracting uh, and incentivizing lo local entrepreneurs to um, to build businesses here, which is keeping talent here. But you also, of course, have a lot of Russian, uh, Belarusian, Ukrainian companies that have relocated to Central Asia in the past year and a half. Um, and Uzbekistan is capturing a bit of that. So you know, if you look at the increasing amount of IT, if you will, um, coming out of Astana through their sort of IT park up there, uh, you should potentially have something very similar in Kazakhstan. Sorry, in Uzbekistan. Interesting. In in terms of, um, you mentioned uh, Kazakhstan being more predominant in kind of oil production. Uh, do you think the natural geology of Uzbekistan suggests a similar kind of you know, set of discoveries, or is this something that you think is unique to the Caspian Sea and not to um, uh, the actual kind of like physical ground? Yeah, I mean, what's funny about countries is when you look at how their borders are drawn. So if you look at Uzbekistan, their western border is literally a straight line down. Clear indication that um, uh, Uzbekistan was not to be given access to the Caspian. So uh, you look at Kazakhstan and their biggest oil fields are in and around the Caspian up in the northwest. So Uzbekistan has oil and gas. It definitely needs to invest more in its gas infrastructure. Um, but it'll probably always be a net importer of uh, oil and increasingly gas, which again is perfectly fine because if you look at who has the refining capacity um, in the region, it's Uzbekistan. So the way that I look at Uzbekistan is that it's never going to be competitive in, let's say, um, basic shirts and socks. That's going to be Bangladesh, Vietnam, Cambodia. Um, Uzbekistan is going to be a value-added commodity producer. So they're going to take, for example, uh, crude, they're going to refine it here into kerosene for jet fuel, they're going to refine it into various petroleum products, and then they're going to sell that back into places like southern Kazakhstan. Um, or it's going to be used in the petrochemical industry here for, for example, like gas, uh, to produce plastic resins, fertilizers, etc., and those goods will be exported. So Uzbekistan is very much the processing center. It doesn't need to be uh, self-sufficient at all um, or, or be well endowed in certain commodities like hydrocarbons. Interesting. And in many respects, that's arguably better for the kind of value add um, and value capturing of the region as well. Yes, yeah, certainly. If you look at Central Asia, if it was one country, which it was 100 years ago, the, the region was called Turkestan, um, you, know, you think... Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan had the water. Um, Uzbekistan has the agricultural land along with Kyrgyzstan a bit, but Uzbekistan has the labor and a variety of resources. And then Kazakhstan has the ability to grow cash crops um, and it has the oil and gas. So 
if, it, if the whole region was one country, it would be uh, a very well integrated country. But of course, that's not happening anytime soon. Fair enough. Um, in terms of the education landscape over there, uh, you know, the image that comes to mind is the old USSR and Soviet um, technical education that was kind of premier globally in many respects. Uh, does that legacy still exist in Uzbekistan? And what, what, how do you kind of describe the strength of the kind of upstream education that goes into uh, the labor force in the country? Unfortunately, it's a big setback for this country. Uh, education here is not as good as it should be. Luckily, the government understands that's a huge issue and potential detractor for the development of the country, and they're trying to reform it. So you know, I was what brought me here in 2020 is I got a job as an adjunct professor teaching a few hours a week. And then, of course, pandemic hit, so I stuck around, uh, not teaching anymore, but it gave me some insight into some of the private and public universities here. And the universities aren't terrible. Um, some of them are actually quite good. The challenge is that you need to start, you know, reforming the education system is a 20-year process, if you will. You need to reform it from kindergarten all the way up through primary school to university. And that doesn't happen overnight. So you could have the best universities in the world, but if you haven't given your students the um, tools needed to, say, think critically, ask questions, and the desire to learn, and knowing that they actually need to study to be able to get good results, um, that causes huge issues. So again, the government knows it's a big problem. They're investing hundreds of millions in due course. They'll be investing billions into it, um, but it takes time. So, but certainly a lack of capacity in this country is a result of the poor education system. In terms of hard infrastructure, one of the compliments I've seen given to Uzbekistan is its train station, uh, its, its train system as a whole. Um, in terms of the spectrum of hard infrastructure and your assessment of it, one being transportation, two, um, I'm very interested in kind of digital infrastructure, you know, telecoms, data centers, etc. What's your kind of assessment at a high level of those um, three subsets? Um, it's very good considering where the country is in its current stage of development. When I first came here in 2018, having previously lived in, again, mainly Southeast Asia, um, back then, Uzbekistan arguably had better infrastructure than Vietnam. It didn't have fancy bridges because it doesn't need to, like you see in the Mekong and whatnot. But in terms of rail infrastructure, um, the airports, and then uh, even the roads, I mean, in all the major cities, the the, the key roads are three, four, five lanes in each direction. Um, the infrastructure here is superb based on where it is in its current stage of development. And they keep building it left and right because they need to. Uh, it is The country is growing very rapidly. Um, but it, And as you mentioned, you know, the railroads um, are very good. You know, there's a high-speed rail in the country. They call it a bullet train, but it's really just a high-speed rail. But I think at peak, goes about 230 or so kilometers an hour. Um, but they're Spanish trains, self-financed by the government. And now they're expanding it further to the west to a city called Hiva from Bukhara. And then in due course, I believe their plans are to move it into um, the Farragonda Valley, which is where the majority of the population is. Similarly, with uh, you know, telecommunications infrastructure, when I first came here in 2018, in the cities it was okay. Um, but the moment that you drove out of the city, not only did you not have 4G or LTE or Edge, 
you didn't have service. So if you got a flat tire, you were in trouble. You had to wait for a car to come barreling down the road to, to help you out. Um, now, in most of the country, you have 4G. And on the trains, you have 4G as well. So um, they still have a ways to go to improve it. But speed-wise, connectivity, um, I, I'd say with having spent some time in Europe this summer, telecommunications network is better in Uzbekistan than a lot of Western Europe these days. Um, oh, wow. So do you think that there's, um, as they kind of open up their economy, seeking external investment, um, as you've observed on the ground and through analysis, if you were to describe kind of three high-level areas for investments, again, your speciality right now is kind of public markets, but more in the sense of folks who may want to do joint ventures or who want to invest on the private side of things, um, using a combined analysis of kind of economic opportunity, but also how far behind they may be in certain areas or you know, the need to upgrade a certain kind of uh, sector, um, what, what are two or three kind of sectors that you think or, or subsectors that investors may want to look at with regards to Uzbekistan? I might give you a few more than three, but I'll try um, to keep it limited. So certainly um, electric infrastructure, so energy. Energy is huge. And they need base load, not intermittent solar and wind. They need nuclear, they need gas, they need coal, um, ideally nuclear. So energy, um, road infrastructure, uh, then education, healthcare, and I, I think one of the biggest opportunities, but certainly a challenge having explored it in Southeast Asia myself, would be agro-industrial uh, infrastructure cold storage, logistics, um, you know, general food processing, being able to do packaging, irradiation facilities, to be able to uh, increase the quality of product, increase um, lifespan, because you know, a lot of stuff is picked when it's ripe, then it's taken to the bazaar, and you know, it, its lifespan is two or three days just because it was picked fresh. So the ability to streamline that, make it more efficient, and increase exports, um, of quality product that can enter more markets would be a huge boon for this country. What's the structure right now of the um, agricultural sector in Uzbekistan? In what regard? Is it predominantly fragmented amongst smallhold farmers? Are there a couple of big cap players that are integrating? Um, is there a lot of international involvement in terms of you know the Nestle's of the world or the um, Louis Dreyfus's of the world, etc.? Um, what, what does it kind of like look like? Um, what does the landscape look like on that front? The majority of agriculture in Uzbekistan is smallholder, and then you have a handful of local groups, whether they've been banks, textile companies, um, industrial companies, which have then taken uh, food and beverage companies that have then taken you know excess cash flows and invested into orchards or whatnot, um, you know apples, grapes, peaches, etc. Um, and they're what you would call the the more large-scale monoculture, but still large-scale monoculture here is maybe 40, 50 hectares. Um, you, you don't have huge, huge monoculture here. So the vast majority of um, the agricultural industry here is very much smallholder. What do you think it takes to succeed in agribusiness? Um, is this something I'm just generally kind of like curious about? Because as I look at, say, um, conversations I've had with folks who invest in Africa, one of the big topics is despite the fact that you have, say, you know, 70% of a population in a country like Zambia or whatever, working on agriculture, there's still one importing food from outside, two, you know, 
as a result, not self-sufficient, but three, there's just shocking inefficiency in the system. In contrast, you may have a place like Netherlands where they're just like incredibly efficient at uh, production of food. Um, what do you think kind of enables the creation of these companies that can be these aggregators of these types of things, like the OLAMs of the world, et cetera? Well, if we're just kind of pontificating here. Well, when I look at Uzbekistan, or I guess anywhere really, it comes down to having someone who knows what they're doing, um, picking good land with good soil, um, knowing what can grow, what can't grow. Um, but then also quoting a friend who is an agronomist and investor in agriculture here. I saw him yesterday and we were talking about exactly this. And he said, you know, um, the most important thing that, uh, in agriculture really at the end of the day is luck because you can have an invasive species. You can have an environment, a virus come and destroy your, your farm. You can have a drought, um, you can have a whole variety of things that can cause problems for you that you can't control. And this is the curse of agriculture is that it's one of the most important industries in the world, but um, you're hostage to so many variables that you have no control over. Very interesting. So I'm guessing uh, for the more risk averse investor, agriculture is probably not the sector to look at in Uzbekistan. Well, something that I always found interesting, having looked at the mango harvest in uh, in Cambodia is that you know, when you go to the bazaar here uh, right now, for example, you can buy a six, seven kilo watermelon for a dollar fifty. It's free. So the problem is that there's such a lack of cold storage logistics um, that when smallholders harvest, they all typically harvest at the same time and everyone brings their product to market, which collapses prices. You can buy a kilo of strawberries at peak season or dollar, um, uh, effectively free. So the ability to go and acquire large amounts of product at peak season, and then at the very least have the cold storage ability to hold on to product for even if it's a few weeks, you can capture a great margin that is the, the season fades, and then you can unload your product onto the market, or you can buy huge quantities of um, various harvests at, you know, at peak harvest and, and um, freeze it, process it, export it. So that's a huge opportunity. But again, a lot of people in the ag space don't have the working capital or the warehousing to be able to do it. So there's definitely more risk versus way, risk averse ways to play the ag market than just pure farming. I was quite a fan of coming across a few um, uh, cold chain uh, roll-ups in Latin America that launched in the last couple of years. I find it interesting because obviously if you look at, say, um, infrastructure, you know, that, that being a core form of infrastructure for the agribusiness in general, an underrated pattern, I think, is you know the private funding of infrastructure in most of these markets. Um, one example, like historically, is if you look at, say, uh, Argentina, most of those railroads were funded with you know, British joint stock venture money, finding these avenues for private investors to get involved in these areas that could have tremendous kind of growth characteristics is very exciting. Um, one more thing I'd like to ask on this topic is if one looks at, say, a place like Malaysia, where I remember reading the statistic where I think between 12 to 16 of the 30 billionaires in Malaysia came from the palm oil industry. Uh, this is interesting because like 
typically wasn't didn't think of oh agribusiness as a producer of these generational entrepreneurs and generational wealth etc um what do you think is different about that versus say traditional kind of agricultural entrepreneurship which may not produce as many um of these types of magnates like what's what's going on there malaysia for example um i mean if you let's use the clock family the clock family got the monopoly for if i'm not mistaken importing wheat and they had all the flour mills in the country. So when you have a monopoly, you can do such things. And I imagine a lot of land acquired for palm oil plantations was acquired very cheap. Um, and you know, as we both know, palm oil is one of the cheapest, uh, if not the cheapest edible oil to produce. So um, it's a good business, both there and in Indonesia. Um, you know, in Uzbekistan, it's not a, it's not a cash crop country. It's a high value crop country. Again, it's berries, it's um, peaches, nectarines, apples, etc. Um, so you know, a bit of nuts. It's things that you don't need to have 50,000 hectares worth to be able to make a lot of money. You can have a much smaller um, footprint and, and still do quite well. Uh, but a lot of it is probably lack of capital. And uh, again, you're the, the benefit of the palm oil industry is that they undercut the majority of edible oils, especially you know, sunflower, rapeseed, etc. Well, uh, you can be growing peaches here. Firstly, it's perishable, unlike something like uh, palm oil, which is perishable but has a much longer shelf life. Um, but with products that are grown and harvested in Uzbekistan, they, they have a much shorter shelf life. And then you're competing uh, against the clock due to logistics, which can be quite expensive. For example... Uh, you look at I- Iran. Iran is a huge horticultural um, uh, production center, which is supplying the broader region. They can do it cheaper than Uzbekistan. The quality is not as great, but again, price and access to market is key. So I think that's one very big differentiating factor between uh, being big in agribusiness and, for example, Uzbekistan versus um, Malaysia. I appreciate you sharing that. That's actually helped deepen my model of uh analyzing those types of opportunities. Um, zooming out a bit, one of the big narratives with regards to Uzbekistan opening up is the privatization pipeline. Could you share some high-level thoughts on the development of that and how folks can think about this? Yeah, the government has, I think, about 30 companies slated for privatization, uh, mainly through the stock market. You know, the, the problem is that, again, this country is going from having been exceptionally closed and um, you know controlled by state to being more free market and open um, you know, over the past what, five years or so. And change doesn't happen overnight, as we know. And the problem is that in frontier markets where you've got development banks and consultants helping push you along, nonetheless, things don't happen overnight. They take time. So the plan is to privatize uh, sort of what I call the crown jewels of the economy. So banks, insurance companies, some real estate companies, um, mining, steel, etc., and it seems that in due course they probably will. There have been a few false starts, but uh, probably the big thing holding back the privatization program is the question of who's going to buy the privatizations. Um, you know, we're investing in Uzbekistan, but we were early and we went through the pain of opening up brokerage accounts, which required apostilles, translation of documents into Russian, etc. Very bureaucratic. Um, There's a comprehensive piece of capital markets legislation which is sitting in Parliament right now. 
It just finished translation of it. And then it'll go for comment. It'll be moving around through Ministry of Justice and whatnot. Um, but it'll probably take a little while further to, um, to be passed. And this encompasses everything from securitization of assets to creating um, mutual funds, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that piece of legislation is also going to enable the Tashkent Stock Exchange to integrate with Euroclear and Clearstream, uh, which means that foreign investors won't necessarily have to open up local brokerage accounts. But further, the legislation will eliminate the need for translation of documents into Russian, apostilles, etc. There will be a digital account opening process. So the, the big question in the capital markets here is you've got huge value in listed companies, but how do you increase liquidity? You increase liquidity one way through marketing, better management of these SOEs, even before you privatize them, but also uh, making the, the rails to access the market easier and more seamless. And you know, for example, the CEO of the Tashkent Stock Exchange is a gentleman named uh, George Parsashvili, who's the former CEO of the Georgian Stock Exchange in Tbilisi. He's done this before. Um, but it's a matter of getting everyone involved on the same page and moving forward, which again, it's bureaucracy, the country with a whole lot of bureaucracy. Nonetheless, as these pieces begin to fall into place, um, I, I think you'll have a, a rather sizable privatization program. Maybe some of these companies ultimately don't get privatized, but there's enough of them that will be partially privatized to, say, for example, transform the domestic capital markets. And I, I think in due course, that actually kickstarts a, um, an IPO wave of private companies, something similar to what was experienced in Mongolia five or six years ago. Um, so the privatization program here is always around, uh, in, in terms of progress. I think they have a few other things in my opinion, which need to be executed on before they can actually really consider a, a large scale privatization program. Interesting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Mongolia actually, cause you mentioned spending time, um, working and exploring that market. Uh, a while back we had a fellow on the podcast talking about this Jamal um, who worked on mining in Mongolia, uh, also a strong, strong kind of natural resource market. Um, and th from my understanding, there was a lot of hot money that entered during a cycle and left afterwards. Could you share a bit of a history of um, Mongolia's, uh, what you kind of observed in Mongolia for people to kind of like assimilate that case study in their model? Sure. Well, you know, as we've talked about offline, what's fun about frontier markets is you realize that the entire social construct that we believe that exists in the West um, and, and exists everywhere actually is a figment of our imagination. Mongolia is a perfect example, sort of from a governance angle. So, you know, um, Robert Friedland, I believe in 1998, um, bought the OU Togoy expiration license from, if I'm not mistaking, BHP, or BHP had dropped it and he got it from the government. Anyways, they had their discovery, and I think they signed the investment agreements with the government, the first one, in 2008 or 2009. Naturally, the 2000s was you know, the decade of China, so commodity prices were booming. Mongolia was booming. By 2012, after the GFC, you know, Mongolia was the fastest growing economy in the world. So my business partners were organizing a conference there. I'd been fascinated by it for a while because we had a mutual friend who set up a company to invest in real estate there, listed the company on the uh, Toronto 
uh, venture exchange or Canadian national exchange. So I arrived in June of 2012. And in my first week, I met three people who said they were going to invest between 10 and $50 million into city center real estate. Now, for those who have been to Ulaanbaatar, especially back then, the country is, uh, the city is completely transformed. Back then, if I'm not mistaken, the population of Ulaanbaatar was about 1.3 million and 700,000 roughly lived in what are called the Gare districts. The Gare is a yurt. It's the Mongolian word. They're effectively the slums. So you have four or 500,000 people living in city center proper in real housing. Well, if you were to invest 10 to $50 million into city center real estate, you would retire a good portion of the Mongolian population because property prices would have gone up of several hundred percent. Naturally, this is when Mongolia was super hot. These people looked around. I imagine they had a lot of fun. A week later, they left and they probably have never been back. Then in August um, of 2012, I remember I, I was sitting at a cafe with a friend and we were talking about the economy. And in May of that year, uh, there's a company called South Gobi Sands that um, uh, I think the Chinese, a Chinese group was looking to acquire. And the government passed a law stating that they could deem any asset in Mongolia, any mining asset, um, is strategic and therefore mm. um, take a mandatory, I think, 34% stake. So they effectively blocked this takeover and foreign investment had already started dying off by the time I got there. But I was sitting at this cafe and we were talking about the economy. and it was like overnight, someone had literally just turned off the light switch. Cranes stopped turning, construction sites were empty, the currency blew out, um, and they went into an economic crisis. Um, and of course, this is right as the commodity markets were peaking around 2012. And the economy didn't really recover until, if I'm not mistaken, you know, there was an IMF bailout in 2018, 2019. But I was going back and forth between Mongolia and Southeast Asia until I think the middle of 2016. And it was fascinating because when you thought that the economy couldn't get any worse and the government was going to fix it, they implemented some phenomenally stupid policy that made it worse. And then when it got worse and the currency blew out again, I think the currency back when I was there was 1,328 at the low. Now, if I'm not mistaken, it's 4,000-something. Um, when you thought it couldn't get any worse, they did something else, and they did it again. And that was when I had my epiphany moment and realized that, you know, because everyone talks about catching the bottom. And that's when I realized that when people say it can't get any worse, you look at Venezuela, you look at Zimbabwe, it can always get worse. So once they had an IMF bailout, things started to turn around, and then, of course, COVID and whatnot happened and um then you had you know the commodity cycle bottom and, and it turned so mongolia is doing okay now but um that was my experience in mongolia it was truly fascinating to see how a country could run so far off the rails and um continue to move in that direction and for example and, and then i'll 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 stop talking but um i forget the year i, I was invested in a, a coal company. Um, Next to the, it's a Hong Kong company next to the um, Hong Kong company that has a coal asset next to Tavong Togoi coal deposit. I believe it's the biggest coal deposit in the world. And like 70 kilometers from the Chinese border. Well, the president of Mongolia invited the Dalai Lama. 
because they practice a degree of Tibetan Buddhism in Mongolia. And the Chinese government advised them not to invite the Dalai Lama. Well, of course, they invited the Dalai Lama. I think he spent a week or so there. Everyone was happy. And then all of a sudden, the border with China closed for, I believe, nine months. And the economy went into a spiral. And this is before the IMF bailout, um, which didn't help the situation because the economy was already in shambles. Um, and, and then, of course, Mongolia is a different country today. Um, it's moving in the right direction, more or less. But um, it, it was fascinating to see sort of free markets, um, ideologies in motion, things that you would yeah. never think would be possible were possible. And that was a big eye-opener for me, that anything is possible. <laughs> Very much the embodiment of um, Murphy's Law, which I'm sure will um, calm and soothe investors in these areas. I don't know. Um a, a next question here is um, what South East Asian or just general kind of like Asian country do you think is most underrated and which is most overrated by investors right now, given your kind of exposure and experience in most of these places? Unfortunately, can I, can I say Iran? Um, yes. Uh, well, well, that's an answer for a very small segment, small <laughs> segment of people who are able to, who are not kind of caught by US and UK sanctions. Um, <laughs> Iran is, I think, one of the most underappreciated, uh, misunderstood countries in the world today. Um, but let's say South, Southeast Asia, um, I, I, I guess perhaps Vietnam, but it's, it's also flavor of, flavor of the month, if you will. Um, but, you know, it's certainly built on globalization and an export economy, but, and they're going through a real estate crisis right now, which is fine. They need to because the property market was very overheated, but there's still a whole host of value in, in that country. Uh, and Southeast Asia, you know, it's going to muddle along, I think, as you see sort of deglobalization of the world um, and regionalization and balkanization and the fact that Southeast Asia doesn't have a whole lot of its own resources. It's very much a, a processing and re-export region. But um, if there's one country down there that's going to probably do quite all right, and, and again, there's some serious value in, in the stock market these days in Vietnam, um, that's a country I would keep an eye on. It's completely transformed since I last lived there. Interesting. I um I think I remember looking at uh, I think it was two and a half months ago, Asia Frontier Funds uh, quarterly update, and they were showing the returns for Vietnam and Iraq as being far outsized to the other countries at the time. I think Iraq was up like forty seven percent year on year, and Vietnam. Uh, I don't know if it was kind of like recovering from kind of like really kind of like what was a, a bottom in the kind of stock market and so therefore also had a significant uh, growth delta but i that's that's interesting to hear um one more question here is how do the business slash investing cultures differ across these different countries that you've spent time operating within there are similarities and differences um I guess perhaps how blunt you are. In some countries, you're more forward. In some countries, you're more reserved and you, you take things slower. Um, difficult to answer, but I, I think probably the biggest common denominator is that, and, uh, is that uh, relationships are 
integral. And I know that probably sounds funny because relationships are important anywhere, but um, in these markets to do serious business over a long period of time, good relationships and trust um, is very, very important. But likewise, you know, to be able to establish those relationships, something I love about all the countries that I've ever lived in is that you know, if you want to go more or less and meet government official, you want to go meet a public company or private businessmen and whatnot, they're typically an email or a phone call away um, due to a lack of capital and, and that these countries are searching for investors. It, it tends to be relatively easy to uh, have meetings with people that you wouldn't so easily have meetings with in, in Western countries. I totally resonate with that. I think, um, so a good friend of mine, he uh, he's a couple years older than me, very sharp guy. Um, and he worked at an emerging markets fund that was based in London. And uh, he spoke about one, what was what he felt to be a lack of kind of training and kind of care for uh, the new generation. It was a bit of a sweatshop, quite frankly. Um, but the second thing that he spoke about was now he's building a startup in Kenya with a friend of his. And he spoke about how within the first three months, the ability to, uh, in many respects, participate with the top rungs of participants in these markets was essentially you know, a finger click away. Right. And that is so, so different, especially for someone our age. You look at how ossified and kind of how held up a lot of these kind of hierarchies are. Um, I, I think that's actually a great point and a great value prop for folks who are young. For example, when you first started out, like it must have been a very exciting kind of journey, not calling you old or anything. But um, yeah, for, for myself, I, I very much resonate with that. Um, here's another question What are some investments, transactions, or company stories that you think are indicative? of the types of success scenarios that can happen in frontier markets. Um, we've kind of spoken about some of the difficulties and we've spoken about some of the macro tailwinds for opportunities in Uzbekistan. What are some examples historically that kind of show people the types of uh, you know, home runs, so to speak, that one could hit if they get things right in one of these markets? I mean, we can look at all the stories of Russia and buying Russia in the 90s. Um, but I'll give you a personal example. When I was in Cambodia for the first time, I guess the second time in 2013, January, um, I, I, I met a lawyer and we became friends and he showed me around Phnom Penh a bit. And I remember on the outskirts, the, the city was being expanded. And back then you could buy uh, rice paddy on the edge of Phnom Penh, which is now very much in Phnom Penh uh, for roughly $4 US per square meter. Um, actually, I'll tell you two stories. So this is the first one, $4 US per square meter. And that's now prime factory area going for 120 to 150 per square meter. Well, Similarly, I, I have an old acquaintance who... Um, he was sorry, can, just, yep. can, you, can you go back for a second? Um, in terms of land acquisition, land title rights, etc., um, how was that a risk variable that kind of would have come into factor there in contrast to other regions? What, what, what was that regime like in, in that place? I'm just wondering what the type of calculus someone who sees that at that time would have gone through in terms of, mm, would this be an enduring investment or not if they were on the ground? To a degree. Uh, you can set up a land holding company in Cambodia and um, structure where you can have de facto control over the land. Um, 
So, but then, you know, for example, in, in Vietnam, it's much more difficult. Um, in Uzbekistan, it used to be much more difficult. But, you know, if you, of course, then you, you might have to put something in someone's name, which means that it's not really an institutional level investment. Um, but another one for you is um, I have a uh, old acquaintance in Cambodia, and he was an archaeologist. He went in, I think, 1999 to go do some work on Angkor Wat. He moved there. Um, I believe he became a citizen, and he has several tens of thousands of hectares of land spread throughout the country um, that he bought for about a nickel per square meter. That land today is probably worth fifteen hundred to two thousand per hectare. Wow. So, um, not bad. Um, I think the biggest challenge in these markets is. You, you see great wealth that's accumulated. They're very difficult places to do business, but I think longevity is the key. Um, if you're willing to be on the ground, number one, not fly in, fly out, build strong relationships and trust, but also be willing to be there for the medium to long term and, and benefit from that re-rating. Because again, as we've discussed offline before, um, the price you pay anywhere in the world is key. Uh, if you can buy assets cheap and you can hold on to them and you've got the right tailwinds, um, especially if they're secular tailwinds, you can build generational wealth. Very exciting stuff. Um, on that note, I was going to ask for any kind of final pieces of advice or lessons or calls to action. Those seemed like some sub great advice nonetheless. Um, any, any final calls to action for the audience um, before we end uh, today's session? Perhaps just if one has the curiosity, travel as much as you can and travel to places you otherwise would never travel to. For example, last year, I, I made the trip to Liberia. And oh, nice. Going to Monrovia, this is my first time ever in Africa, which a few friends said you really hit Africa hard. Um, <laughs> it, it was eye-opening as to how uh, other parts of the world function, especially ones that are very undeveloped. Um, it was a rough trip, but it was very educational. So I think travel is key, um, and yeah, having an open mind and, and being able, being willing to look at anything. Any investment opportunities that struck you as interesting in Liberia? Logging and gold mining. That's what I went there for. Awesome, cool. Well, I look forward to discussing that further another time. Thank you so much for making the time, Scott. It's been wonderful and deeply educational. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Krish.